0: Welcome to the Virginia Politics and Government Podcast. This is your host, Jeff Thomas. It's an honor to have as our guest the Reverend Ben Campbell, a Rhodes Scholar, servant leader, community activist, and someone who has done as much as anybody to advance the causes of peace and reconciliation in the former capital of the Confederacy. Thank you so much for coming. Good to be here, Jeff. Reverend Campbell, I'd like to talk to you about your book, which is, in my opinion, the best book ever written about Richmond. Why did you write Richmond's Unhealed History?
1: Well, it was started as a series of lectures. i have been working in Richmond and Churchill a good bit for some time. and I'm a lifelong Virginian, and I just had these puzzles that were just constantly worrying me. And I couldn't figure out why this place seemed so stuck, why the values that people kept stating seemed to have very little impact on what actually happened. The place seemed immobile. And I just began to ask the questions, and I had a couple of experiences that opened up possibilities to me, and I began to pursue them. First, I was walking through Churchill one night. I was in Libby Park. It was about dusk, maybe 7 in the evening. woman sitting on a bench, who I knew, and I, I said, How are you? And she said, I'm depressed. I said, Why are you depressed? She was depressed a lot, but this was extra depressed. And she said, you know, I think part of it's just the mood of this place. She said, you know, we're eight blocks away from what was the largest slave market on the East Coast. When I hadn't been a student of American history, but I had studied a lot of things, and I'd never heard that. I thought it was an interesting comment. I asked her what she meant, told me a little more, but she didn't know much about it. This probably 1990. I was... Standing at Richmond Hill, which we had just purchased and were opening as a monastery retreat center, and I saw a woman walking along across the street with about 20 students, and so I went out and started walking with her and asked her what was going on. And she said, Well, I'm showing these students some of the unmarked sites of history in Richmond, black history. I said, Like what? And so she gave me a list. Her name was Nancy Joe Taylor. She had been a student a Christian Public Schools teacher for 35 years. She was an oral historian. And she handed me a list of unmarked sites, including Lumpkin Slave Jail, the Cage, which was a holding pen for torture um, down in the market area, a black hospital, which wasn't there any longer, of the Manchester docks, where some of the trade and slave Africans that happened. And she just gave me this long list, and I wrote it down and started looking at it. And out of those two things, I began to get into the kind of history of the place and what had started from the beginning. And I began to feel that it wasn't a question of Richmond being stuck in the Civil War. It was something much deeper. And if the Civil War did anything, it simply cauterized the wounds and made them unrecognizable. And so I just kept digging, and digging gave four lectures one year. They became six the next, they became eight the next, then they became ten, and then I decided to publish them, that's the book.
0: You have a brilliant quote from the great American historian Frederick Law Olmsted from, I believe, 1859 or 60. And he says that Richmond has all this potential, but it's stuck in a cycle of negativity.
1: Olmsted came to visit here just before the Civil War. He was writing a book called Journey in the Back Country, and this is what he wrote, 1860. Richmond somewhat surprised me by its substance, show, and gardens. It's a metropolis having some substantial qualities, having a history and something prepared for your future as well. Compared with northern towns of the same population, there's much that is quaint and provincial. It is only the mills and warehouses, a few shops, a few private residences and hotels that show real enterprise or real and permanent wealth. What a failure there has been in the promises of the past. That, at last, is what impresses one most in Richmond. It is plainly the metropolis of Virginia of a people who have been dragged along in the grand march of the rest of the world, but who have had for a long time, and yet have, a disposition within themselves only to step backward. So my current answer to the paralysis of the Virginia temperament that is so exhibited in Virginia is that we had a half revolution in 1781. Half the population went into freedom and half the population went into a totalitarian state. That's literally true. That's an uncompromised and uncompromising statement. Half the population went into something that was not terribly different from Soviet Russia people were hanged they were tortured they were raped that threat was there every day you had no life of your own basically you were owned by someone else you could not earn an income it was just awful and there's no way to say it was anything but awful and when the slave market gets going in 1830 you can be ripped up and sent south downriver, and your family will never hear of you again and you'll be working in the sugar and cottons until you're dead And that's basically what that life was about. That's what was going on here. That to proclaim the highest values that have ever been effectively stated in any nation in the world, and at the same time to practice this absolutely horrible level of human oppression is paralyzing to the human spirit. It actually paralyzes the interior. It means that you you cannot function because you're living with guilt, shame, and denial every minute. You've constructed a society in that way. And that paralysis is, unadmitted, has paralyzed, has continued to paralyze for the last 120, 130 years. Or actually since 1781, that's more like 250 years. Now, of course, it started before that, and there's some interesting history behind that the whole white slavery of the 17th century, which has never been admitted either in this state, which really suggests that we were dealing with the class system as well as a race system, had a lot to do with making us who we are. So we've, we're taught the Declaration of Independence as if it were a statement of reality. We practice, our ancestors practiced something else, and today, without the same names on it, we live in a society that was formed in a different
0: way. There seems to me to be a paradox there, and that is at the same time that there's a negativity, there's also blindness to what has happened. And what you're saying is more profound than some of the historians who've written about this. This is happening now psychologically to our people. This is not some historical thing from hundreds of years ago. This is happening now. How does that spiritually or psychologically, how is this happening in 2017?
1: I did a lot of work before or while I was doing this, I was also working with inherited trauma. I was working with uh, individuals and the ways in which traumas of their parents or their grandparents can actually be passed down into their lives and they can afflict them psychologically and emotionally. And it's pretty real. And if you do do counseling or, or prayer ministry, which I do, you find out that this depth stuff can really be present in people. How it happens, I have no clue. There is, however, Data for it in the Hebrew scriptures where it says four or five times the sins of the fathers are passed down to the children through the third and the fourth generation. That's just a statement that's hanging out there in the middle of the Torah. And it describes a reality, it's an empirical statement. They're not talking about, you know, you've got to be held accountable for your great, great, great grandfather's mistake. They're talking about the fact that you're bearing in yourself in some way the results of what it is that tormented. That person. I looked at that, and I began to look at that model. I also studied it in other countries, and there was a group in UVA that was studying this particularly over in Yugoslavia, and in uh, in that uh, horrible war that started up there with Bosnia, looking at trauma between races and groups that could kind of go underground and reemerge two, three, four hundred years later. The thing that happens in Richmond that was so bizarre. I mean, in in 1993, we did a history walk, a walk through Richmond's history. It was actually based on Nancy Joe Taylor's list of undiscovered sites. And we had 600 people in it, people from all over the world, the mayor of the city, a number of others. We began to mark these sites that had not been marked. Um, out of that, the city council started a slave trail commission uh, to try to mark unmarked sites. Still at that point in time, 1993 to about 1998, the conversation was about the African slave trade having had some place in Richmond. By the year 2000, we began to become aware that there was no upriver African slave trade in Richmond. In fact, the African slave trade had been ended in Virginia in 1774, immediately before the American half-revolution. And that Richmond had not really been established till 1781, and as it began to show up, we came to the awareness that this had been the largest downriver market on the east coast of America. That 300 to 500 thousand people had been sold in a trade that we knew nothing about, in a valley in the middle of the city, slung between "All Men Are Created Equal" on the Capitol and. Give me liberty or give me death on Churchill, right down between the two. Three to five hundred thousand people were sold between 1830 and 1860. We knew nothing of it. And in a city that claimed to worship history, this piece of information, which was incidentally in books all over the world, perhaps even read in graduate schools, was not present. How do you not know that for 120 years? Black people didn't talk about it. White people didn't.
0: And I will tell you this, the Virginia University system didn't talk about it. You point your finger, not without justification, at the Richmond newspapers, which are now one newspaper, largely monopolistic. What role does the Richmond Times Dispatch currently play, not in propagating fake news, as we hear so much about, but in propagating fake history?
1: Well, I think that
0: the Richmond Times
1: Dispatch, like most media in our time, is crippled. I think we're in a time of very distressing crippling of media. The money and the energy has been taken by electronic media, the television, which prizes presentation over substance. CNN has a half second of news and then 28 minutes of uninformed commentary. That is standard, and of course, we all know that Fox is just bizarre. But it's now, the uh, of course, the... The Internet has taken this strange job of informing people by uninformed people, which is pretty wild. So the finances that produce the possibility of significant news coverage have really been severely depleted, and that's at the Times Dispatch as well. So the Times Dispatch is a a topical publication which has four or five significant locally generated news stories a day. And small stable of reporters and a couple of really good people, but it is not a terribly constructive force in the city. And the Times Dispatch and the Richmond News Leader, which were owned by the same company and same family, actually the Bryan family, both operated here during the time of massive resistance and the last great public fight over segregation, were instrumental in holding this place down. The strange allegiance between racism and money in Virginia and the South, probably the world, is very apparent. Virginia's establishment is as well established as any place in America. It certainly has a heavy investment in a hierarchical system that places persons of color in the low level, but it is also the most hidden in its articulation of its prejudices and pursues its control in an extremely veiled fashion. The actual contract really starts in the 17th century in Virginia, and in the 17th century in Virginia, they basically had white slavery here for about 60 years. White people were just dragged off the streets of London, thrown into tobacco fields. 50 percent of them died the first year they were there, and they just kept bringing them in, throwing them tobacco fields, and dying. They were dying every time a guy brought one over. He'd pick up 50 acres of land from the king, and he'd make a thousand percent profit on the person's labor. And you got this horrible class system going on where the great men, 100, 200 Virginians basically owned the state. They were the House of Burgesses. That's our democracy. And these absolutely pitiful folks like you and me were out there dying in the fields. That finally began to fall apart with Bacon's rebellion in 1676. Now, rebellion is a revolution that doesn't succeed. When Bacon's army surrenders in 1676, the army is half black and half white. It's basically bonded persons in Virginia, of whom one quarter were black at that time and three quarters were white, but they were fighting together. And so the great men went and they formed something called the Virginia Slave Code in order to place white people slightly above black people to control them. It was a very significant description of white privilege. No more money, but entitlement of some sort. So you could go to court, the black man couldn't go to court, for example. If you stayed at it long enough, you might actually eventually get free. He wouldn't. But in the fields, you were working together. You had the same work. You had no money. You could be pushed around. You couldn't be beaten if you're white without cause. You could be beaten if you're black without cause. So these differences got made by law in the Virginia slave codes. And what happens then is the great men rely on poor white people as a buffer, against what then becomes an enormous influx of African slaves beginning in 1705. That use of racism as a way of maintaining control continues to this day. It's just been used in our presidential election. That particular game is all over the country today. But it still is basic to Virginia. Sometimes done subtly, sometimes done overtly. First Times Dispatch did it very well for a long time. They don't do it as much today. There are some good things going on in Times Dispatch today. But generally, it's hampered in two major ways. One is it's extremely underfunded, really does not have enough reporters, can't keep good people long term. It's hard. Secondly, it's very, very vulnerable to the white business establishment and cannot write any stories that embarrass anybody who has money unless they're black.
0: You talk about the great men. You say this relatively small number of large and influential landowners, numbering no more than several hundred, controlled the economy and composed the House of Burgesses, the political power. You say that continues on to this day. How have things changed? The number
1: one change is that nobody knows who they are today and that it was very obvious who they were in Colonial Virginia, and it was very obvious who they were actually till about 40 or 50 years ago because the same families controlled as the economy has gotten different, as the metropolitan cities of Virginia have sprawled so that you're not all dealing within the same jurisdiction, as the sources of money are so strange in this society. You know, you used to actually have to own something or work for somebody to have money. Nowadays, you may just be hooked up to some hedge fund and all of a sudden you're able to control an election. That is the strangeness that's around. So... We clearly do have a few people calling some big shots here, and most people who work with the legislature know who they are because you find out, and there's no press to report on it. We know Dominion has a lot of control in the state, but that's just because they are just so out there that you can't help them know it. You can't talk about it mostly.
0: What happens if you talk about it?
1: There's no place to print it. There's no place to publish it, and in Virginia... The only thing more shameful than being black is being a white liberal. That's poor taste. People think you're weird and wild, and they discredit you. And that goes back. It goes It goes straight back to race. There's actually a book published with a title on it. It's called Race Traitor, which is an interesting thing. But to be a white person who just plain believed in human equality, which I think is still in the Bible, that's I mean, what I recall, that's just wild they disrespect you and you've stepped off the cliff and you frighten them. And I think that's what it is. I mean, it's it's very, very frightening to break ranks in this kind of strange, divided society that got set up here. Go back to how does a society emotionally and psychically hide from the fact that it has the largest slave market in the East Coast of America and forget it for under 20 years. I don't want to be hyperdramatic about this, but I will tell you that that demands a tremendous level of denial and a tremendous level of fear. Why do white people in metropolitan Richmond sprawl out over the countryside faster than any other metropolitan area in Virginia? We had a study about 20 years ago where the Chamber of Commerce went to Richmond's peer cities around the mid-Atlantic, Memphis and Charlotte and Greensboro, High Point and They found that of the four cities they studied, Richmond had the lowest crime rate and it had the highest fear rate of crime. Now, this is just me growing up in Virginia. I think that if you're busy oppressing other people and keeping them down and making a lie of the values that you state, that basically you are afraid of them because you know they want to get you or you think they might want to get you. And you basically are afraid. And if you read the stories of Richmond, This constant fear of black people should be because you're basically chaining and selling them, but there's just fear. And on the one hand, you practice this, everything's all right on the surface, and we're all buddies, and actually you're terrified. That kind of thing that is still present, which means that Chesterfield County won't even allow a bus to come across its county line. In the year 2017, we have the smallest footprint of public transportation of any city in the world. Something is really bizarre. In this deep-seated stuff, the problem is just you can see his power, you can see his continual work, but you don't know how to break it.
0: I grew up in the Richmond power elite. These attitudes were never directly transmitted to me, never explicitly, not once, not ever so far as I can remember. But they were there and I could never put my finger on it. That's it.
1: (laughs) Very effective. (laughs) That is so, that is so descriptive. The majesty of Virginia. That's when we were going through the Civil Rights Movement, the Virginians would just sneer at Mississippi because they used all these nasty words to one another and pulled out fire hoses and all that stuff. And we were a lot better than they were, really. More tasteful, perhaps.
0: I went to the archives of collegiate school, the training ground for new money power elite in Richmond and in Virginia to some extent. And I asked to see the board minutes from the 1950s and 1960s, where they never told us, of course. Why Collegiate all of a sudden expanded to three times its size and started accepting men, I believe, in 1964. Talk to the archivist, he says that there's no mention of race. There's no mention of massive resistance. There's no mention of coming out to the county for any reason to do with schools whatsoever. It was all implied. That continues. To this day, how are we ever going to get past this? I really believe in the resurrection. I mean, I hate to say it, but I'm a priest, and it's a pretty good
1: thing to believe in, which means that what I believe is that there is a Holy Spirit of God which is in the process of bringing about things that have not happened, that are positive, reconciling, um, bringing justice where it hasn't been, opening people's eyes to things they haven't seen. That means that we are not alone in the hope that, Telling the truth will help us grow, and it will help people make steps that they might not otherwise have made. The word repentance is an interesting word. The actual Greek word means to change your way of seeing things. It doesn't mean just feel bad about something. What these people believed was that you could have a fresh outlook, that you could actually see more clearly than you've seen before. Whether we're doing this interview or whether I'm writing a book or you're writing a book or whether we're talking to people, that we do not need to be hopeless about the fact that people can change and people can see differently. It always takes initiative. I'm trying to help people get public transportation and Richmond. I think it's the breakthrough issue here. And because we can do it without having to change our jurisdictional lines, which were established for racial purposes. But it can make a difference for everybody. Every other city in the world has it. They seem to think it makes a difference. People say, you know, well, what do you think will make it happen? And I say, well, how about you? And what I've encountered is this tremendous sense of passivity before human change. uh, I have this image of Patrick Henry standing up in the middle of St. John's Church in 1775 and saying, As for me! Give me liberty or give me death. And, you know, everybody else goes back and says, well, I think we'll just stay a British colony. I do have to give this other quote, which is totally useless, but my friend Garrett Apsu is one of the great commentators on Virginia in this last century. He wrote a book called The Shad Tree. He's actually writing two new mystery novels about Richmond. But Garrett wrote in the Washington Post, I don't know, 25 or 30 years ago, an article, and he said, Virginians felt that they'd invented democracy, so they really didn't need to have much more to do with it. And that kind of describes sometimes this level of passivity. I mean, if something's wrong and you're not doing something about it, as I understand democracy, that's your problem, not somebody else's problem.
0: The end of the Gospel of Luke talks about the speaker's anticipation of the resurrection and the second coming of Christ. They say, how are we going to know when Jesus comes? And they say, you're not going to see angels or clouds or anything coming down from the heavens because the kingdom of God is within you. Do you believe that?
1: I think that Jesus came and described a transformational process by which the world and its activities were gradually becoming a part of God's kingdom all the time. So he told his people to pray, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. He was not talking about a kingdom after death which is what everybody likes to talk about because then we don't have to worry about it. It was not promoting bus trips to Heavenly City. He basically was inviting the transformation of human life into an effective community. That's what the Holy Spirit does. It brings justice. It brings truth. Because none of us likes justice all the time or truth all the time. We need to be converted. It's not going to be finished by the time I have to leave here, but it is in process. I see change around me all the time. I really believe in the power of the resurrection, which is why I'm willing to be an open critic because I think people who don't believe in God's power or the power of the Holy Spirit to change, or the power of human beings to change, can't afford to tell the truth because they think nothing will happen except misery if they do. And I think telling the truth is a step toward health,
0: and I think it doesn't bring it down by itself, but it beats the heck out of the alternative. Are you happy that you have devoted your career to Richmond? I sure didn't intend to.
1: When I was growing up, I grew up in Arlington. I had a girlfriend in Richmond. She intimidated me because of all the class warfare stuff that was down here that I wasn't a part of. Everything she was involved in had D at the beginning of it, like the country club. Or the club, they would the country. I didn't understand any of this stuff. I was just an ordinary, you know, suburban boy. I came to, during civil rights fights, I came to feel that Richmond was the enemy. Because I was in Arlington, they were trying to close our schools. And the bishop made me come here, the priests, I had to go where he told me. But I think this is where the beast lives, and maybe the beast of America. This is where the whole thing started. Within a one-mile radius of Chaco Valley, you basically have 400 years or more of American history, right there. You can see it stacking up and you can see it making its mistakes and you can see what it does to itself. We are in a fascinating time here where we are dealing with the real deal. Things move very slowly, but when things move in Richmond, they really move. You can move something in Los Angeles and it only deals with the block next to you. But when something moves in Richmond, everybody feels it. And I feel privileged to be a part of it. And I'll tell you, as I've found all my life, when people attempt to be faithful to deal with real issues to deal with the spirit of god and the true spirit of human beings and fight those fights with good spirit they become richer and you get to associate with some very very rich people you feel the
0: privilege in the middle of the battle and i'd rather be here than out there doing nothing there are some ideas that you mention in the book that are facts the united states the English colonists, they committed genocide against the Native Americans. There was slavery in the United States. Some of those things that could not be mentioned in previous generations, or maybe were even considered heretical just a couple decades ago, now you can get them maybe a public hearing. Some people will say, no, that never happened. Some people will deny reality. There has been progress. What's your goal? What do you want city council to do?
1: What I'm really interested in
0: is justice and equality and a good chance for every
1: human being, kind of like what Thomas Jefferson said he wanted on that strange night when he wrote The Declaration of Independence. I guess Sally wasn't there that night. What I really care about right now is that we have resegregated schools that are underfunded and get blamed for the deliberate segregation that has been imposed on them. I really care that the General Assembly isolated the city of Richmond and made it economically nonviable in the middle of three affluent suburban counties, which were created for the purposes of maintaining racial segregation. I really care that we don't have public transportation in our city. And I really care that if I help a kid and work with a kid to get graduated from Armstrong High School, he can't get a job. And I care about the fact that 25% of our African-American males have felony convictions. These are the things that matter. I care about the fact that we seem unable to address these issues of injustice and go on and work with them. But we have to stay defensive about them or ignorant about them or run from them. You know, I don't, I don't get it. I mean, there is no purpose to have a society except to have a good society. Why would you just simply want to make yourself rich and run off and kind of get yourself that big house in the burb? In the you know, I don't get it. It makes no sense. Life is short and life has to have meaning, and that's not meaning.
0: I'd like to end with what began it all, and that is on your first page, you talk about the founding of Richmond. How was Richmond founded?
1: When John Smith and Christopher Newport come up the river on May 24th, 1607, they hit an island in the middle of the river. Now, they've come up the James River. I don't think it was called the James River. And the, the James River was basically the local highway. So there were 30 Indian villages along the way. Everybody was watching them as they broke up the James River. It was two weeks from when they stopped at Jamestown. And they had an Indian guide with them. Apparently, he spoke English. And It's an interesting question of how he knew English. So they bumped up on this island, and they took a couple of sticks, big logs, and fashioned them into a cross and stuck them in the ground and gave a great cheer. And the Indian who was with them asked what that was about, and they said the cheer was because the two arms of the cross symbolized the covenant between King James and King Powhatan. And then they wrote on the sign of Jesus. Christopher Newport put his own name on the foot of the cross as well. Now, what they did was they lied straight out. That's just a straight line. They had no intention of having to come to King Palatine. They considered him less than fully human. They thought they had a right to take his land and they intended to take it away from him as soon as possible. They thought they had the right to take the whole property. It was racist, it was absolute economic and political exploitation, and they felt no necessity to tell the truth. And worst of all, from my point of view, is that they thought Jesus endorsed this. I mean, I just can't get that. So Jesus is endorsing racism and exploitation and lying, and what became is a 90% death rate for the Native Americans in Timewater over the next 30 years. That's not a good start. Don't tell the story that way, though. I want to say this. If they told the story that way, I'd tell some nice things. Because I think it's important. I don't think this is all just a horrible story. It's a complicated story. It's difficult. It relates to the evolution of the world, not just our own. Hopefully we learned to bring the thing out right in the long run. But because the thing has been lied about for so long, we can never get to the point where the truth gets told. And so we act as if injustice were an exception in our situation. We just had to make a couple more things right. And the fact of the matter is they're not right. They didn't start right. And they've never been right. If we can start from there, then maybe we can make them right. And that's the challenge of our time. That's why history has to be properly told.
0: What can listeners do to help? It's called It's called rvhrapidtransit.org you can
1: help us get a public transportation system for metropolitan Richmond. I think that's probably the most significant thing. Secondly, if you have something you can do to find ways to help support the Richmond public school system, you can do that. Third, if you can do something to support issues of employment and support for persons with felony convictions, please do that. I was on the capital steps when the government call up, announced the voting rights restoration for persons with felony convictions. He had just asked me to come to it and I gave a little history. It was one of the most stunning moments in my life because it was done voluntarily. The problem with Virginia that just hurts me deeply now, my, my family's been here since 1760. The thing that hurts me is that I also believe in the idealism and the values of the state. And I believe in the things stated by Jefferson and the Declaration. I, I think there's some great things that have happened here. And yet, The only time we've been able to live up to what we want is when we made the Yankees do it to us. It took the defeat of our people to make us end slavery, and it took the defeat of our people to make us overcome racial segregation in schools. And as soon as the Yankees left, we did it all over again. I'm not saying the Yankees are very good either. We need to do our own work. I would love to see us do our own
0: work and be proud to be Virginia. The book is Richmond's Unhealed History. I know my audience and the kind of people who listen to this podcast. And if you live in Richmond, I strongly encourage you to buy this book. Reverend Campbell, thank you. Thank you so much.